morning, and we're going to be in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17, if you want to follow along um, in your Bibles. Now, many of us, as we're diving into a new book just for this Sunday, Exodus, though, is probably somewhat of a familiar book for us in the sense of it is what its name says, right? It's about the, the, the Israelites' exit out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. And as we're going to see this morning, as the Israelite exit Egypt, as they are freed from slavery, it's not necessarily just an easy process for them. And they actually struggle with their newfound freedom. Need to be reminded real quickly of what the Israelites have just gone through, right? They, at the beginning of Exodus, they, they cry out to God. And what does he do? He sends Moses into their life to redeem them. And Pharaoh is, of course, obstinate as Moses goes to him. And so the ten plagues ensue with God's judgment, if you will, against the Egyptians and against Pharaoh for not letting his people go. But then finally, of course, he does. And the Israelites, they're led by that incredible pillar cloud and fire by day and by night. They, they, they go through the Red Sea, right? They walk across on dry ground. It's incredible to think of. And then they get on the other side, and what do they do? I think we even mentioned this last week. They grumble because the, the water is, is bitter. And so what does he do? He makes it sweet for them. They grumble again because they don't have food. And so what does he do? He gives them food. Now, you and I, we may hear about the Israelites. We may think, oh, they saw all these incredible things and... If only I had been there, if only I had seen all those incredible things, certainly I wouldn't have acted like the Israelites. And secondarily, my faith would be so much stronger if I saw what they saw. But I think as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see that that's not always the case, is it? And I doubt that's the case for us. Let's look at the passage, Exodus 17, just the first seven verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you instruct our hearts today? Would you help us? I fear too often we live our lives so much like the Israelites. Oh, would you teach us this morning to walk in your ways? Would you teach us the wonders this day of your grace so that we might go forth 
in this week serving you. Oh, use your word this day to penetrate our hard hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded, some, many of you have probably seen Shawshank Redemption at some point or another. I'm not going, this isn't a blanket recommendation for you to go out and watch it. Uh, but I wanted to just mention, there, there's two different prisoners that I want, that it all takes place in the context of Shawshank Prison. One of the, the characters is named Brooks. He's an older gentleman. He's been in prison for 50 years, but he is a kind, gentle soul. He's the librarian, not the kind of person seemingly that you would typically think of in prison. And one day, he threatens another inmate's life, taking a, a makeshift knife to his throat. And everybody freaks out, what, what in the world happened to Brooks? This isn't like him. This is so out of character. And then they find out what had happened. But he'd gotten a letter that his parole had gone through, and he was getting out. Now, one of the other characters read, said this, Brooks ain't no bug. He's just institutionalized. The man's been in here for 50 years, 50 years. This is all he knows in here. He's a, in here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Out there, he's nothing. Just a used-up con artist with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? You believe whatever you want, but I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First, you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, and you get so that you depend on them. So Brooks got out, and maybe you know the story. He couldn't handle life. He couldn't handle freedom and ended up taking his own life. Another character goes through a similar predicament, and that's Red. He's played by Morgan Freeman in the movie. And he finally, after 40 years, gets out as well. And, and at first, his newfound freedom, he struggles in it. He works at a grocery store, and he, he, he can't help but like go to his boss just to ask to go use the restroom because he's so used to being in prison. And imprisonment had become safe for him. So much so that he actually confesses that he was thinking through ways to break his parole that he could go back to prison. But finally, he remembers about his good friend, Andy, and his good friend, Andy, told him where to go, and he went, goes out in this field, and he digs up this box, and in it is money and a note from his friend, Andy, telling him where to find him in Mexico, and Red ends up escaping to Mexico, embracing his friend. He was able to find freedom. Now, these may seem like difficult stories to start off with as we start our sermon this morning, but I think they're so applicable to our text. You have Brooks, this man who is unable to escape bondage. And then you have Red, who though he does struggle, what is he eventually able to do? He's finally able to escape and, and experience true freedom. And as we see in our text this morning, the Israelites, I think, have a whole lot in common with Brooks and Red, maybe more than we would think at first. Looking at verse 1, what do we see? All the congregation, the people of Israel, where are they there at this place called Rephidim? It's very near Mount Sinai. They, they may have even been able to see it from where they were at, but we see something about this place. We see it at the end of verse 1. There was no water for the people to drink. Now, we need to read that first part of this verse, verse 1, closely. Did you read it? All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. How did they find themselves at Rephidim? Where the Lord led them. No doubt that pillar cloud, that pillar of fire had led them to this place. And here they are at this place. They've set up camp and they find that there is no water. It's not Moses' poor leadership that's led them to this place of no water. 
It's Yahweh. It's their Lord that has led them and taken them to this place. No doubt this is intentional on God's part. He's teaching them something. Now, at first, when we read these kind of things, they don't necessarily compute for us. It certainly, as we see in our text, it doesn't compute for the Israelites very well, does it? You know, they've been offered freedom. And yet, what are they offered here? Suffering. Okay, yeah, they're out of, out of Egypt, but, but here they are. They're brought to this difficult place where there's no water. It's like a can't, carrot has just been dangled in front of them and then just taken away. They're told that God is going to free them from slavery. He frees them from slavery. But then all's not good. On the other side, they find themselves thirsty with no water. And where are they? They're not in the promised land yet, right? They're in the wilderness. They're, 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 they're on their way. They're in this place of marginal sustenance, if you will, that really couldn't maintain life. And so what do the Israelites do? God's brought them to this place. What do they do? Verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with him. Now, previously in Exodus, we've seen, we, I mentioned before, the, the previous time with the bitter water and then with food. We, we read that they grumbled. Now we read something different. They quarreled. Now, you may hear those words and you may think, what in the world is the difference? Does that really matter? It sure seems to matter to Moses. Do you notice in verse 4 what he's afraid of? What he's afraid that they're going to do? He's afraid that they're going to stone him. You see this quarreling. It's actually legal language. It's like the first step on the, on the path to bringing formal charges against Moses for his poor leadership. Okay, this is a judicial thing. This isn't just them grumbling. It's, it's gone to another level. And if not rectified, Moses is going to lose his life for his bad leadership. Here they are in the wilderness. God's rescued them, freed them from slavery, and yet where do they find themselves? They find themselves thirsty, and I wonder, do we notice how similar their predicament is in many ways to our own? We too find ourselves in a wilderness today, don't we? We think about it. We're going through a wilderness experience. Now, granted, we can talk about all the differences and there are some incredible differences, right? We have Christ. Christ has come, and that's not a small, a small difference, but in some ways our situation is so similar, isn't it? We too were once in slavery, and we too have been released from the bonds of that slavery. Slavery to sin, Paul talks about in Galatians 5. He says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You see, kind of like the Israelites, we too are on our way to a promised land, except it's a far better promised land, right? The, the new heaven, the new earth, that incredible picture that Paul gives us, or that John gives us in, in Revelation, a place far better than the promised land these Israelites are going to. But we find ourselves in the midst of a wilderness, right? Jesus has come, yes, but he has also departed, and, and we await that day where he is going to come again, and right now we live out life in a place where all is not good, a place where all has not been made good yet. Like that thirst of the Israelites, we too have longings that deep down in our hearts, this world just never seems to be able to satisfy, don't we? We find ourselves thirsty and in a world of pain at times in our life, don't we? 
And we think, well, this isn't the way things are supposed to be, right? Well, if we listen to the Apostle Peter, we'll find out that things are actually pretty much on schedule. What does he say? For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, this wilderness experience not just a part of the experience of the Israelites, it's part of the Christian experience. As we're on our way to that eternal promised land, and Paul is helpful in the way he characterizes it, he says this. What does he call it? He calls it this. He says, for this light momentary affliction. He he calls what we're experiencing now a light momentary affliction, and here's the problem. As you experience, it doesn't always seem light, and it doesn't always seem momentary, does it? But Paul says this is a light momentary affliction and it's preparing us, get this, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, it may not seem like it, but we must step back a bit. We must take the big picture in and this is what the, that the Israelites are failing to do here in our passage, Right? They're so focused on the moment. They're so focused on what's going on in their moment right then that it's like they've completely forgot the big picture. They forgot the big picture of where they have just been rescued from and what they've just been rescued out of and God's incredible provision along the way. And it seems like in this moment they've totally forgotten it and they've totally forgotten the incredible promises that he has for their future in this new promised land. Is that you? Are you like me? Do you get so focused on the moment at times? You get fo- so focused on this moment that you lose sight of what Paul talks about here, of the eternal weight of glory that he's preparing for us. That's beyond all comparison. We need to step back and see the big picture. The big picture of what our Savior has done the big picture of where our Savior is taking us, and understand that right now what He is doing is somehow we may not be able to comprehend it, but it is for the good of His people. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Not know if you noticed in our text, but the Israelites, they don't just grumble and complain, do they? They, t- they take it to a whole new level. A whole new level that maybe we take it to as well. Verse 3. The people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses. And look what they said. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying we were better off back in Egypt. We were better off back when we were enslaved. They, they begin to long for those good old days of Egypt. Those good old days of slavery. And this isn't the only time they do it in their wilderness wanderings. You, we read it throughout the book of Exodus and elsewhere. I think that illustration that we thought of earlier of Brooks and Red from Shawshank Redemption is actually helpful here. Those two men, they had become comfortable behind bars. Even though they longed for freedom, which they did, they longed for freedom. 
what did they begin to do? They began to get their security from the very thing that deprived them of the freedom that they longed for. That's why Red says these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes and you get so you depend on them, that's institutionalized. They send you here for life and that's exactly what they take, the parts that count anyway. Maybe you've heard of the Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm, Sweden, 1973. A guy attempts to rob a bank, ends up um, taking three females and one male hostage. For 131 hours, he terrorizes them, shooting automatic weapons almost at them but not at them, putting nooses around their necks, threatening that he's going to kill them, but he never harmed them. And then the incredible happened when they got out. They said they feared the police. They didn't hate their hostage taker. They wouldn't testify against him. One of the women became engaged to him. And we hear that and we think, how? That's crazy. And then we're reminded of how sometimes we do the strangest things to cope in this life, don't we? We go to the strangest thing to find comfort in the midst of our affliction. And you see, there was something comforting for the Israelites, even as they thought back to Egypt and thought back to slavery, much like Brooks and Red, as they thought back to prison or those hostages. One author puts it this way. Let's be honest. There was a whole lot about Egypt to like after all. The Israelites had settled there for hundreds of years. I mean, think about it. They, they built highways. They, they knew all the back roads. Egypt had become home. And yet we went with disbelief each time. We see the Israelites rebel against Moses, don't we? That's what we do. We hear them rebel and we're thinking, how could you? With our thousands of years of hindsight, what do we do? We assume that we would have made better choices, but would we? I mean, just think, Stockholm Syndrome, it's all about coping. Coping is what we do to get through life's rough places. Faced with the familiar places of Egypt in our own lives, we choose to stay and survive sometimes, don't we? We find ways to make slavery more palatable. Do you do that? I mean, are we really any different? We look at the Israelites and we want to say that we're different. No way I would want to go back to slavery. I mean, that's just silly. But do you remember the words of the Apostle Paul? For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I think Paul knew us all too well. He knows how we operate. He knows what we do. He knows how tempted we are to resubmit ourselves to slavery and to sin. Could be that man who, for seemingly the millionth time, has confessed and promises God he never will again, but then goes to pornography again. The woman who deprives herself of food yet again. The student who looks over at his neighbor's paper and copies the answer because he just has to make a good grade. The alcoholic who once again returns to the bottle. The mom or the dad who again looks to 
his or her children and their achievements or their behavior for their own glory some way. Or could be a pastor who several years ago, from what I hear it was quite a few years ago, took the afternoon of Mother's Day, Mother's Day evening off so that his wife could get a good night's rest, or good afternoon's rest and nap while he was smoking some baby back ribs for her for Mother's Day dinner. Smoked them to perfection. They were really good. Not that I would know. But, right, as everything's about perfect and everything's ready and we're, it's time to sit down at the table, the wife gets called away to have to run over to the church real quick to handle something. About that time, one of the sons comes in and complaining that his stomach's hurting. He's in pain, he's crying. Finally, the wife gets back, sit down at the dinner table, and now those ribs are just warm. Still tastes good, but not great. After just a couple of bites into the meal, the son throws up at the table. The perfect Mother's Day dinner, right? And what does that pastor do? Again, submits himself to the yoke of slavery. Putting his worth, judging his worth by the success of a Mother's Day meal. Finds himself grumbling, maybe even grumbling to God about why the day had to turn out like that. I don't share that to even our constant return to slavery. But to show just how pervasive it is in our lives. It is pervasive, isn't it? From big things to the most mundane things. We, we've been set free. But for some reason, we keep longing for those things and we keep going back to those things that enslave us. That Mother's Day feel, meal was a good thing to want. Good thing for want that for, for, for my wife. And I know... Food isn't, now it's not the best time to talk about food. But ribs are a good thing. They're a wonderful thing. They're to be enjoyed. They're a wonderful gift of God. And, and in that moment, you're able to maybe foretaste it. It may just be a tiny bit. But just a little foretaste of heaven. But we take these good things. We make them ultimate things, don't we? We twist them. We make them into the thing that we long for instead of the thing that they are meant to point us to. Our incredible Savior, Jesus Christ. The Israelites, they, they, they long for freedom. But it was very difficult for them to trust this new God, wasn't it? He was very new to them. It was hard for them to trust that he was really about giving them good things. The things that they really needed. But things were not coming together according to the Israelites' plan, at least. Because they weren't to the promised land yet. But they wanted to already be there. But that's not where they were. He didn't have them there yet. He was teaching them. Teaching them what it looks like to be his disciple, what it is to follow him, what it is to love him. With all of their heart. And the Israelites struggled. Thankfully, our story doesn't end with the Israelites wanting to return to slavery, right? But our story ends with a good and gracious God 
despite the way his people have put him to the test, despite the way that they have made these threats against his servant Moses, their good and gracious God provides for him. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What's Moses told to do here? He's told to take his staff, that rod, and to strike a rock. Now what's telling here is, did you see what God said to him? I want you to take in your hand the staff with which you what? Struck the Nile. Do you remember what happened when he struck the Nile? Exodus 7, verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sights of Pharaoh, in the sights of the servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the, blood or, all the water in the Nile turned into blood. You see what's going on there? That staff... And in that day, those staffs, they, they, they communicated authority and judicial authority. And when Moses strikes the Nile, what is he doing? He's bringing judgment to Egypt. He's bringing judgment to Pharaoh. And he does it by turning that precious water of the Nile into blood. It was an act of judgment. And now what do we see in our passage? But that act which once turned water into blood is now bringing life-giving water from a rock. You get the contrast. The, the people asked in our passage, we, we see it in verse 7, what do they ask? Is the Lord among us or not? And what does God do? He brings forth water from a dead, lifeless rock. They ask, is the Lord among us or not? And what do we read in our passage? What does he do? What does he say he is going to do? Verse 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, it's unclear exactly what this looks like, but clearly God's presence is there. Is it that incredible cloud? Is this somehow some special presence only known or visible to Moses? What it look like? We just don't know. But what is clear is that God on that day was with his people. The very people who had grumbled, complained, and quarreled with him the very people who, who questioned whether God was really among them or not, even after all that he had done for them. What does he do? He shows to them his incredible patience and his incredible love. They're, they're struggling 
in the midst of this wilderness experience, and what does he not do in this case? We'll see other, we see other cases in Exodus for sure. But here he doesn't chastise them, does he? But he gives to them abundantly. Miraculously even. He's trying to teach them. These new followers of him, he, he's trying to teach them. What is he trying to teach them? But that he really does love them. He really does have their best interests at heart. And that he really can be trusted. He really can be trusted even as they're not quite to the promised land yet. We need that reminder this morning. What has he demonstrated to us in Christ? But yes, he does love us. Yes, he does have our best interests at heart. And yes, he can be trusted. Do you believe that this morning? Now, one other thing. You remember that rod, that staff, that is a sign of judicial authority used for punishment even of the Egyptians. In our story, the incredible happens, doesn't it? Yahweh, the people's great God, their God, our God, stands before Moses. Moses is standing there holding the rod. And we get a little picture of Jesus and his sacrifice, don't we? Verse 6, I, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. One commentator puts it this way. The Lord, Yahweh, stands in the prisoner's dock. Do you know what the prisoner's dock is? We don't have them in our courtrooms, but some European courtrooms have them. They have that place with rails around it that the, that, that the accused sits by themselves, kind of all locked in. So this commentator says, the Lord stands in the prisoner's dock. Now Moses can't strike into God's, the heart of God's Shekinah glory. He can't do that. But God commands that the rock be struck. And that rock is actually identified with God himself. We must ask, is God then guilty? No, it is his people who are guilty. In rebellion, they refuse to trust the faithfulness of God, yet God, the judge, does what? He bears the judgment. He receives the blow that their rebellion deserves. This is a picture Granted, a dim picture, but it is a picture of Christ. The striking of the rock. And the life-giving water that, that flows from it points us directly to the provision of our great God for us. The Apostle Paul helps connect the dots in 1 Corinthians. As he's talking about this very instance, what does he say? And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The Israelites didn't quite know it. They didn't understand. They didn't understand all that it was pointing to. The Apostle Paul helps us connect the dots. That the one who, who came, the one who saved us, who shed his blood for us, even 
even our sin of longingly looking back to slavery, of constantly going back to our, our former sins, even for that, our Savior died. Died so that we might be truly free. So that we might know true freedom. Now, the Israelites had this problem. We have this problem, don't we? Finding ourselves going back again and again to slavery. Back again and again to things that will only put us into bondage. And we know it. And yet we go back again and again. What do we do with that? I think maybe we need to identify the real reason. We need the right prescription. And I think part of that prescription is that we've forgotten Jesus. That we've forgotten the rock. We've tempted ourselves into thinking that we can do this life in some way on our own. We've forgotten how desperately we need him. Need him not just to save us and rescue us and, and first bring us to faith, but we need him each and every day to be at work in, around, amongst us, and through us, through that incredible work of his spirit. We need to be reminded that we are everything that we are because of him. That we are what we are in our, our union with him. That, that wonderful thing that Paul talks about, the, that we're united to him in his death and in his resurrection. United to him that his death was our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. Oh, how, how we tend to forget Jesus. We, we focus in on the moment when things are going bad. And when we do that, what do we do? We tend to run back to the things that enslave. But what do we need to do? We need to see that what we're going through, even these moments, are but a light momentary affliction that are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. We need perspective. We can't just be focused on that moment, but that's what we're so tempted to do. We must focus on who our great God is and what our Savior has done in the past. We need to be reminded of His promises for right now that He is present with His people through His Spirit, and we need to be reminded of those incredible promises to come of that incredible promised land that He is leading us to. The question for all of us this morning, as you go into just even this afternoon, much less the rest of this week, are you going to choose slavery again? Or are you going to choose freedom? For freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery.
Hear the call of the gospel today. Hear his call to you today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your incredible work for your Son is astounding. The incredible lengths that you have gone to for us, that you allow your, your own Son to be stricken so that we would never have to be. It's amazing. We thank you this morning for your provision on our behalf, your provision by which you have brought freedom to your people. We admit, we confess, we keep wandering away. We keep going back to slavery. Oh, Father, would it no longer be so? Would you help us this day to not be torn down by the moments? Help us not to be torn down by the momentary afflictions of the moment. Oh, Father, and help us to be reminded of that eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison that you desire to give to your children. Oh, Father, we need you to remind us this week of the gospel. We need you to remind it of us, remind us of it, and we're tempted to go back. Holy Spirit, would you do your work in the hearts of your people this day? But as we go forth, we would walk and step with your precious spirit. We pray. Amen.